0: For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But now, Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the Law and the Prophets testify. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Well, good morning, MBC. Pastor Dave here coming from my living room into your living room in light of the quarantine situation and the social distancing, but we still are committed to the Word of God and want to bring you an encouraging scripture today from our series, Through the Book of Romans, But Now, Hope for All Who Fall Short. I have my slides set up here on my TV screen, and we hope that this is a blessing uh, to you. Thanks for joining us Uh, Let me encourage you uh, in this way. I want to start my sermon with a quote from a very famous book called Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. If you're not familiar with that book, it is a terrifying story about the good Dr. Jekyll, who is a man who, as time went on, became unhappy with his life. And, And the quote I want to read to you from the book is this. He says, quote, With every day and from both sides of my intelligence the moral and the intellectual, I thus drew steadily nearer to that truth by whose partial discovery I have been doomed to such a dreadful shipwreck that man is not truly one, but truly two. That man is not truly one, but truly two. In other words, he said there's this radical duality in every human being. And he he was tired of being a battlefield for these two selves. He, he called himself an incongruous compound. And here's the problem. He said, I can't be happy this way. Nobody can be happy like this. I, I've got this part of me that's the virtuous self. And then I've got the part of me that's the selfish self. And both of them keep the other part of me from really, truly enjoying my life. And so he said, if only I could keep these two parts of myself totally separate somehow. And so, of course, what he does is he comes up with a potion and he separates the two out. And and when he becomes Edward Hyde, he becomes completely selfish. Every act and thought completely centered on himself. No redeeming characteristics whatsoever. And the way the whole book works is when Edward Hyde gets out, he turns out to be far more evil than he thought, 10 times more wicked than he expected, and he can't control him. And then in the end, Edward Hyde actually wins. Now, here's why I'm bringing this up. I think this is something that all of us can relate to. Uh, The the, the battle that this text today is talking about is something that we can all identify with. The title of my message is Fighting the War Within, Fighting the War Within from Romans chapter 7. You know, our country right now is at war with this virus. We're fighting a war uh, from the outside. But this passage is about a different war, a war that gets fought on the inside of our spirit, on the inside of our soul. I read a piece about this yesterday saying that while we're concerned about being exposed to the coronavirus, this virus is also exposing us. It's exposing our weak sides. It's exposing our dark sides. it's it's exposing what normally lays far beneath the surface of our souls, hidden by this invisible uh, physical, uh, hidden in the hidden hidden in the invisible realm while we focus on the physical realm. So let me ask you, what does your war look like? What is your personal Mr. Hyde? Uh, what habits are there in your life? What behaviors are there in your life? What, what attitudes do you fight with? Uh, some of you watching today might struggle with uh, some fleshly desire uh, to self-medicate with, with alcohol or drugs or some other form of addiction or behavior. You thought maybe you had it beaten and then it, it rears its ugly head. Others of you maybe... Uh, You struggle more with an attitude of of pride and self-righteousness and and judging other people instead of loving them and being merciful and gracious like the Lord Jesus taught us to be. Uh, What is your personal Edward Hyde that lives deep hidden inside of you? How does this war show up for you? And how does God expect us to fight this war? That's the topic of Romans chapter 7. Remember, we're in this part of the book of Romans that's about sanctification, our growing in holiness and being freed from the power of sin. Now, when, when studying this section of Romans, I have been greatly helped by a few scholars. Uh, Tim Keller, who first helped me see the parallel with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, Dr. Doug Moo, who wrote a commentary on Romans, helping me see this battle in the nitty-gritty exegetical parts of this passage. And then also N.T. Wright, who helped me get more of a bird's-eye view of this section of Scripture. And I want to start with his comment first here, just to kind of set this up. N.T. Wright makes this interesting observation about Romans 6, 7, and 8. And he compares these three chapters to three key events in the life of the people of Israel and in their history. Uh, The Exodus, uh, number two, the giving of the law, and then number three, the inheritance and the promised land. The, the Exodus, and then the giving of the law, and then the inheritance. Wright says Romans 6 is about a new kind of Exodus. Just as the children of Israel were freed from slavery to Pharaoh, like that, we as followers of Jesus have been freed from slavery, but it's not just Pharaoh, it's a bigger tyrant. It's the, the slavery of sin. And then in Romans 7, this chapter is all about the law, and what is our new relationship with the law, and how does that play in to our sanctification And then in Romans chapter 8, it's about taking the promised land, our inheritance as heirs, as co-heirs with the Lord Jesus, uh, that we are adopted into the very family of God and and waiting for all of creation to be renewed. That's our promised hope and inherited promised land in the future. I could say so much more about that. Maybe I will at another time. uh, Chase that down in N.T. Wright's book. Uh, It's called The Day the Revolution Began. It's very helpful. But in our passage today, just to get back to this, we're going to see uh, this war is going to be fought with three distinct phases. Uh, We're going to see that we need to drink the potion, we're going to need to stop the hiding, and we're going to need to cry out to God. Uh, Drink the potion, stop the hiding, and cry out. Uh, to God. That's our plan for today. Uh, Grab your Bible, huddle up on the couch, put your phone away, put the dog out, do whatever you need to do to pay attention to this time in the Word of God. And let's really ask for his blessing on our time. Now let's pray. Heavenly Father, we cry out to you. Uh, We ask for your help to understand this pivotal text. We thank you for this time in your Word. Uh, We thank you, Lord, that even across the video, across the internet, we could be together as the body of Christ this morning. Bless your people who are listening. Give us open ears, open hearts to hear from you. And we thank you for preserving this text. Help us to learn deep this morning. In Jesus' mighty name, I pray. And everyone out there said, Amen. Now, as we begin, I want you to remember the immediate context here in the beginning of Romans chapter 7. Pastor Bob uh, eloquently mentioned this last week. He said that there's a relationship with the law that we have that has been changed, and he used the analogy of marriage. He said, it's like you used to be married to the law, but just as a marriage would end in death, in the same way, spiritually speaking, Paul says, you died. Remember Romans chapter 6 says you were buried with Christ in baptism. You died. So there's been a death. There's been this huge change that's occurred in your relationship. You know, when it comes to marriage, psychologists and counselors and therapists will say that losing a spouse is one of the most traumatic uh, losses anyone can ever go through. It's just this gigantic adjustment in your life. In the same way, Paul is saying that there's been a death in your spiritual marriage. But you're the one who actually has died. And therefore, your relationship with the law has now ended. You're no longer married to the law. You're no longer under the law. Now you are under grace and you have been joined to another, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's where Paul left off. And let's pick it up there. In light of that, a question comes up about the law. In chapter 7, verse 7, Paul says this. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. Friends, we have to understand the purpose of the law, what the law was given for. It was given primarily to help us recognize our problem of sin on the inside. Let me try to illustrate it with you. One time I was at the beach and there were these sand dunes and stuck in the uh, the beautiful sand dune was was one of these signs that said this, Please keep off the dunes. And then as I looked around that sign, I saw that it was surrounded by human footprints. Now, can you relate to a desire to do that? I certainly can. Now, as a side note, I know all of us are hoping and praying to get back to the beach soon, right? Can you imagine just hot sand on our feet and warm sun on our Faces, we're looking forward to that, but stay off the dunes, right? Sometimes people can't resist. The law actually entices us to do what's wrong simply because it's wrong. You know, a funny example from my own life. There's this Home Depot near my home where the entrance and the exit, uh, the entrances and the exit doors, they are clearly marked, and I have to admit, I feel a thrill of rebellion every time I exit through the entrance. Door, which clearly says, don't go this way. That There is within me, within us, a sin nature that's easily aroused or provoked or even encouraged when we're confronted with the law. The law brings that out in us. Now, Paul goes on to say this. He says, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. Notice the command that really got Paul. Coveting. Now, what is coveting? Coveting means not just that you want something, although that's part of it. It's to idolatrously want something. Friends, coveting is the essence of sin. It's wanting anything more than God. Coveting is saying there's something besides God that I love and I've got to have that in order to be happy. And I want that more than God's love. I want that more than God. That is the essence of sin. The problem with coveting is that it is a bottomless pit. Once we've been separated from God, nothing else will satisfy us, and so we just want more and more and and more. Coveting is an abyss. So let me just ask you personally, brothers and sisters, do you, like me, see coveting inside yourself, inside of your own heart? I want you to consider that for a moment. What is it in life that you are coveting And how is that affecting your soul? I want you to just take a moment and reflect on that and how you see it in yourself. When Paul saw it, he said it killed him. Uh, Take a look. He says, for apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. Now, what in the world does that mean? Does that mean I was living a, a good life, everything was fine, but then the commandment came and that kind of ruined all the fun? No. Paul is saying this I was alive, and though I had been taught the commandment, it finally came home and killed me. How? It was through this commandment about coveting, and then his sin became utterly sinful. You see, when a Jewish boy would turn 12, they would celebrate their bar mitzvah. Bar means son and mitzvah means the law. So you become a son of the law or a son of the commandment. And they would think of this as being fully alive. It was like their version of being born again. Paul says, I thought that I was alive. I was doing pretty good. But then when Paul saw this commandment for what it really was, he realized, I'm dead in the water. Under all of his morality he discovered that he had this tremendous sense of pride and self-righteousness. All of his morality was really nothing but covetousness. It was his way of being in control and being in charge of his own life. Now, let me just ask you, isn't there a little bit of Paul in each and every one of us? Don't we all struggle with that self-justification? This is what got Paul. This is what got Dr. Jekyll in that story too. There's a scene in the book where Dr. Jekyll tries to do good Uh, to to pay for all of his past sins and to make up for what he's done. And for like three months, Dr. Jekyll does lots of good deeds, lots of good things. But then it all ends. Trying harder to be good, he realizes, didn't beat Edward Hyde. Instead, it made Edward Hyde even stronger. See, here's the crazy thing. Paul was like Dr. Jekyll, a moral man, upright, religious. He thought he was alive, but but then he says a day came in which Paul realized this battle on the inside was raging and the law came home and he died. The law actually aggravated Mr. Hyde and it produced in me every kind of covetous desire, he says. Now most people, I don't think, are so aware of their sin like Paul is. They're not aware of their own Mr. Hyde. They don't fully know. And so that's why there's a potion. There's the law. The law reveals how wicked we actually are. You know, this was written 2,000 years ago, but things haven't changed much, right? The law says don't, and we say, ooh, sounds enticing. There's this pleasure of the taboo. There's the forbidden fruit. The law stirs up the sinful nature. That's the purpose of the law, to show us our sin. This is how the Spirit of God uses the law of God. He comes down and uses the law to bring us to the end of ourselves. The only way to really see our true Mr. Hyde is to drink the spiritual potion of the law. But when you do, it's terribly traumatic. For Paul, he was decimated. So let me ask you, brothers and sisters, have you taken that potion? Have you come face to face with the Mr. Hyde inside of yourself? Have you taken an honest inventory about what's going on on the inside? Have you looked through the lens of God's law and have you come face to face with your own sin? That's step one. We've got to take the potion. Now for our next section, I want us to drop down to verse 15, where Paul gets very personal here. He says this, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Uh, Let's go on, keep reading, just buckle your seatbelts, hang in there. Let's read verse 16 and following. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know the good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature." For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. And verse 19, he says, For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Verse 21, So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Now, I know that was a lot. And there's actually a a big debate about this section of the scriptures. And the debate is about this question. Is Paul describing himself here as a Christian? Or is Paul describing himself here looking back to the time when he was a non-Christian? And scholars are divided about this. Uh, some of the Greek early church fathers and some modern commentators like Doug Moo says this is a description of Paul as a non-Christian. And the reason they say that is because they say, how can the great apostle Paul say things like we, we see in verse 14, I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. And and how can he describe himself as a Christian who sins so compulsively now, all of this seems so hopeless, but then other commentators and and most reformers would say, "Wait a minute! There, there's a change in verb tenses here to the present tense." You may recall in verses seven through thirteen, Paul was using the past tense, but then in verses fourteen and following, he switches to the present tense, and so the more the most natural, unforced reading is probably the reading that says Paul is describing himself right now as a Christian at the time where he was writing the book of Romans. Furthermore, he says in verse 22 that he delights in God's law. You see that here. This is not something that an unbeliever does. Uh, We will read later when we get to Romans 8, verse 7. It says the sinful mind is hostile toward God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And so I think the most obvious way to read this Is This is Paul's present experience, and counterintuitively, this is actually a mark of spiritual maturity. You say, well, what do you mean by that? C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, ask Hitler if he thought he was a bad person, and he'd say no. But if you ask Abraham Lincoln if he thought he was a bad person, and he would say yes. You see, the worse you are, the better you think you are. The more mature you are, the more evil you realize you actually are capable of doing. The closer you get to God, who is altogether righteous, perfect, and, and holy, the more you begin to see your flaws. It's like standing far away from a mirror and not realizing the flaws that are there. Or it's like being in a dark room and you don't realize the, the dust until the, the light comes on. friends you have to recognize that there's this evil self inside of you there's a deep abyss like the story of jekyll and hyde there is in each of us a deep core an evil self a capacity for wrongdoing if it were really released it would be every bit as awful as that troubling story about mr hyde now i know this is not a popular view uh, this is certainly not the view that my kids are being taught in public school, right? Their teachers say, hey, you just got to have self-esteem, feel good about yourself. You're a snowflake. There's never been another person like you. You're just perfect just the way you are and all of that. Most people in our culture think like that. Most people in our culture think that there's like a bell curve. And so on the one side of the bell curve, there's a, there's just like these really saintly people and then on the other side of the bell curve, there's, there's a few people that are just really awful and evil. And those are the two extremes. But most people think, well, you know, the vast majority of our population is in the middle and, you know, people are just basically good. Friends, that may help us feel a little bit better about ourselves. But in the end, we're ignoring the root cause of our problem. And that is not the biblical worldview. The biblical worldview says there's something really dark on the inside of me. But here's the thing. It's hidden. See, the person Mr. Hyde is actually a play on the word hidden. That is exactly what's going on. We can't really see it all. We hide it from others. We even hide it from ourselves. We we practice self deception. We have all these psychological defense mechanisms to confirm the idea that we're basically good people. And if if we see somebody who's bad, we go, wow, something really terrible or traumatic or weird must have happened to them. But the scripture says, no. If you really have the courage to take a look on the inside about what you've been hiding. If you really find the true self on the inside, you'll be able to see that there's evil in each of us. But to do that, we've got to have the courage to stop the hiding. We've got to stop the hiding. See, here's the great paradox, I think, of the Christian life and sanctification and, and Christian growth, spiritual growth. The more holy we become, the less holy we feel. The more we grow in our maturity, the more we grow in our awareness of our sin. Spiritual growth, brothers and sisters, is not like ascending a big mountain peak. No, spiritual growth is more like a slow descent into a cave looking deeper and deeper into the recesses of our soul. In other words, spiritual growth is not up, it's down. Now, you might say, okay, well, is Paul a believer or an unbeliever here? And I really don't know which scholars right and which scholars wrong about that. But here's what I do know for sure. Both the believer and the unbeliever have battles raging on the inside of them. But based on this passage, I actually think there are very different battles that are going on. See, the unbeliever has a battle because everybody struggles with good and evil. But here's the problem with the unbeliever. Those two sides of you are both equally you. You know what's right in your conscience. You know you should submit to God in his law, but you also desire to be your own God, and you also don't want anybody telling you what to do. You want to do what you want, with who you want, whenever you want. You want complete autonomy. Both of those sides are equally you. Now, how are you ever going to find out who you really are? This was the problem in the Jekyll and Hyde story, right? This is why he made the, the potion, He was miserable. The evil self can't get over the guilt that he was experiencing from his good self. And the good self can't get over the temptation he was experiencing from the evil self. There's even a point in the story where Edward Hyde commits a horrible murder. And Dr. Jekyll says, that's it, no more. And he tries to just hold him in. And then there's this horrible moment where he can't hold him in any longer. And then in that moment, he just suddenly becomes Mr. Hyde. He used to have to take the potion to become Edward Hyde, but the center of, of gravity shifts. And now he has to take the potion to become Dr. Jekyll. And then at the end of the book, he, he writes his last will and testament, testament where he says this, quote: I've run out of the potion. I can't do this anymore. He'll never do, never be the, the good doctor again. And Edward Hyde ends up killing himself because he can't see any other way out. That's the hopelessness of the human condition. Both of those parts of us are equally us. And how are we ever going to find out who we really are? There's no way out of that conundrum. And this leads us to movement two, where we find distinctively Christian hope in the Bible. We have to cry out in that moment to God. See, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. The God of the Bible speaks into his creation. Jesus punches a hole in the universe and comes down and reveals a new way to solve this problem. He becomes our savior, but he wants us to cry out to him. And so the only solution is to do what Paul does next. As he cries out to God, look at verse 24 for the first thing that we have to say. He says this. He says, what a wretched man that I am. You know, sometimes I hear that song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And I think that's the right way to sing that. But other contexts, I'm singing that song and I realize whoever's leading that song has changed the lyrics. And now it says, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a soul like me. I don't think that's a good way to sing that song. I actually think there's value in recognizing the wretchedness inside each and every one of us. See, the good news is not good news unless we first understand the bad news. We cannot just look at the cross and only see the love of God there. If you look at the cross and you don't also see the wrath of God there upon our wretched sin, then you don't truly understand the love of, the love of God that's there either. And so Paul says, what a wretched man that I am, which means he's not wrestling with something small, right? Not like, oh, I keep on forgetting to floss my teeth or something like that. No, he's wrestling with something wretched, something big, something bad, something ugly. And so are you and I. We are wrestling with sin on the inside. We have to come to this realization and express our utter hopelessness and despair like Paul. We can't say, well, I'm just going to keep on trying harder. And then I can overcome this thing. No, we got to say, I am helpless. This is like step one in the AA rooms, right? In the 12 steps of recovery. We have to admit that we are powerlessness. Admit our powerlessness. Someone once said, you know, if the horse is dead, get off. I think that's wise wisdom right there. What a wretched man that I am. Paul comes to the end of himself here. And then... Uh, You also have to say this. You have to say this. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Now, I want you to notice something. He doesn't say, what will rescue me? What new idea can I try? What new therapist can I see? What new book can I read? No. For Paul, the question is not about a what. It's about a who. Who will rescue me? And I want you to notice he doesn't say, now I'm going to rescue myself. No. He's crying out for the answer outside of himself. You see, the world says if there's a problem, it always comes from the the outside and the answers are on the inside. But Christianity says, no, 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 no. See, if there's a problem, it's on the inside. And if there's ever going to be any hope at all, it has to come from the outside. Who will rescue me from the body that is subject to death? Paul says, I can't rescue myself, but there is someone who can. After that, that's why Paul says this. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, here's the gospel. Jesus delivers us from this fight on the inside. You might say, how does he do that? When Jesus came to earth and died on the cross, the Bible says he became sin on our behalf. Or to use our illustration from today, it's like Jesus Christ became Edward Hyde. And God the Father in his holiness and justice poured out all of his wrath on sin when Christ hung on the cross and he was punished in our place for our sins so that we could be set free. And now instead of despair, we find joy. And now instead of bondage, we find freedom. And now instead of death, we find life. And the minute you believe that, the minute you trust in that, The minute you trust in Christ, what comes into your heart is the spirit of God who now, not with the old covenant law written on tablets of stone, but with the new covenant promised beforehand comes and and God himself writes his law on the inner tablets of your human heart so that you are born again and you become a new person in the deepest part of your soul and spirit God makes you new. One more verse, our passage. Paul concludes chapter 7 by saying, So then, I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Here, brothers and sisters, is the great paradox of the Christian life. Once we surrender to Jesus Christ, the battle doesn't end. The battle rages on, but now I want you to see something. Paul says, there's still a battle. There's a part of me that wants to do what is sinful, but there's another part of me now that wants to obey God's law in a new way. That that now is the real me, I myself, he says here. Uh, he says back in verse 22, he says, in my inmost being, that's the real me that's been born again, been regenerated, been made new, been brought to life by God, the Holy Spirit. That part of me now delights in God's law. And that is the deepest part of me. Now he admits here, there's still another power at work in this life, the power of sin. But he says, no, that, that power, though it's still there, it's been mortally wounded and it is inevitably dying. But in this life, the battle continues each day. Day And we are all called through the power of the Holy Spirit to fight that battle moment by moment, day by day. And his victory is available for us through the power of the Holy Spirit. In this new battle, my sin is no longer the deepest part of me. I've been changed. Let's say you used to have an addiction or an old habit or, or some behavior in your life. You may even go back to that. But that will never satisfy you anymore. Why? Because once you become a Christian, you've been changed in the depths of your soul. You've been born again. You've been set free. And you can only now find true satisfaction in a life that is lived for the glory of God. And that is life on all cylinders. That is life to the fullest. That is abundant life. And Paul says, thanks be to God who delivers us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so as we wrap up, let me ask you, have you taken those three steps today? Have you taken the step to drink the potion? Have you stopped the hiding? Have you cried out for help? Let me close our message with a true story about a man named Charles Spurgeon who first realized this. When Spurgeon was a young man, he was not a Christian. He was lost and he was looking to find God, but he didn't understand. So he went on a search spiritually. And on a very cold Sunday morning, he, he wanted to go to church, but there was this enormous snowstorm. And so he couldn't get to the church that he planned to go to that day. And he ended up turning down a different street and he went into a different church, this Methodist chapel. And there was only like 12 people there that day because of the snow, which is more people than I have in my living room, by the way. But there he was, barely anybody there. Even the minister didn't make it because of the snow. And some lay person in the church, a shoemaker, was giving the sermon that day instead without much preparation at all. Uh, that person got up to the pulpit and he began to preach and the man's text was from Isaiah chapter 45 verse 22, which says, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. Spurgeon said after he read the Bible, then he began to preach. My dear friends, he said, this is a very simple text indeed. It just says, look. Now, look and don't take a great deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just Look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand pounds a year to be able to look. Anybody can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. I, said the preacher, many of ye are looking to yourselves, but it is no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. And then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me and Spurgeon said when he had gone about that length about 10 minutes or so spinning out a sermon he was at the end of his tether and then Spurgeon said at that point from the pulpit he looked out into the gallery and with a few people there he knew that I was a stranger and he fixed his eyes on me and if and if as if he knew my heart and he said to Spurgeon young man you look very miserable Spurgeon said, well, well, I guess I did, but I had not been accustomed to, to preachers calling out my appearance from the pulpit like that. But he said, however, it was a good blow struck. The preacher continued to say to Spurgeon, and you will always be miserable unless you obey my text. Wow. You will be miserable in life and miserable in death, he said. But if you obey in this moment, you will look and be saved. Spurgeon said the preacher at that point lifted up his hand and he began to shout as only a Methodist preacher can, saying, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. And Spurgeon said this, I saw at once the way of salvation. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked And were healed, so it was with me. Spurgeon said, I've been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. And then he says, I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and I could have looked my eyes away. There's an old hymn that says, there is life for a look at the crucified one. There is life at this moment for thee. Then look, sinner, look unto him and be saved, unto him who is nailed to the tree. There is life in a look at the crucified one. There is life at this moment for thee. Then look, sinner, look. Look unto him and be saved, and know thyself spotless as he. Can we pray together? Right there in your home, would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me for just a moment? Heavenly Father, Thank you for preserving this text that we might learn these truths this morning. I thank you for each person watching. I cannot see them, but you can see them. And I believe with all my heart that, God, you can speak directly through this camera, through the internet, and you could even use this flawed preacher's voice just as that preacher pointed out Spurgeon on that winter day. Perhaps, God, you are speaking to someone right now who's watching. For you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. So I pray that each person watching this video today would now look to the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of us who already know the Lord, my brothers and sisters, would you help us to look to you in this stressful time as well? Everything we have been looking at has been shaking all around us. Everything we've been putting our trust in is coming down except for you. Help us, God, to look to you, the sure and firm foundation today. We pray all this in the matchless name of Christ our Lord. And everybody watching said, Amen. I'd like to close our time a little differently today. Uh, If you enjoyed this message, I want to leave you some discussion questions. Maybe you'd like to continue those uh, over our Zoom chat this afternoon or perhaps just with your own family members, children, or spouse who's watching with you right there. And I'll put these on the screen for you so that you can meditate on these questions. Talk about this with your uh, friends and family today. Question one, can you relate to Paul in Romans chapter seven? Think about your own faith journey with the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you see the truths of these verses really coming home for you? Share that with one another. Question two, how does this description of the Christian life encourage you in your own life? How can you be encouraged by this passage? And number three, lastly, why is it liberating to be able to to be honest, to stop hiding about your own wretchedness? And why is it also important To remember your own rescue. What happens if you forget one of those or the other of those? I hope that those discussion questions help you have a fruitful and rich time in the Word on this Lord's Day. Again, thank you so much for watching. Uh, We are so glad to come into your home in this fashion, but we certainly are waiting and with expectation and with excitement to get to be the body of Christ together again and assembled again. Again, we are believing with faith that we are going to get through this and we are praying for you. If you need anything, we're here here for you and we love you guys. Have a great rest of your Lord's day. God bless you all.